So our title today's message, Still Learning and Growing, and we're going to be covering 1 Samuel chapters 25 and 26. Well, personal relationships are a large part of our lives. The most important being, the most important being our relationship to the Lord. If from childhood, you and I kept a list of the significant people who came in and out of our lives, we'd be amazed at the number and the variety of roles that they've all played. Leaving God out of the picture, the longshoreman philosopher Eric Hoffer said that other people were, quote, the playwrights and the stage managers of our lives. They cast us in a role and we play it whether we will or no. But you can't leave God out of the picture. After all, he is the one who writes the script for us. He chooses the cast and puts us into the scenes he planned for us. If we follow his directions, life becomes the satisfying fulfillment of his will. But if we rebel, the plot turns into tragedy. Well, in these two chapters that we're going to be looking at today, they record four events that reveal David's involvement with four different kinds of people. And we're going to be seeing how God used those four people and used those circumstances to help him learn and grow in his individual life, in his life, in his own life, and as he was growing and learning to one day become king over an entire nation. Now, one of the themes that we're going to be discussing here that we're going to be seeing here is also the importance of discipleship as Christians. And so as we cover this, um, if we read this passage, I want you to think about that and uh, see Again, how David was in a way discipled in an unconventional way by these four people and how we can learn too how discipleship is important for us and in our growth, in our learning, in our Christian walk. So like I normally do, I'm going to pray before we open up, before we read God's word and ask him to speak to us. Lord God, I, as we open up God's word, uh, as, you, as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us powerfully, Lord. Um, and you will show us new truth, and you will show us what it is that we need to know and understand, Lord. That you will show us the importance of uh, learning from others, from those that have wisdom, Lord, that those that, from those that um, maybe know you, who don't know you, Lord. We can learn something from everyone, Lord. Um, and you can speak to us in different kinds of ways, Lord. I pray that we will have, our ears will be open and our hearts will be open to receive the word that we're about to read, Lord, and the message that is about to be presented. Lord, the mercies are new every day and your grace is abundant. And we thank you so much for all you've given us. 
Well, bless us next time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel chapter 25. And the word of God says, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. And they buried him by... David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man in my own had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men, instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, Long life to you and peace to you. Peace to your family, peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. I hear that you're shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them, and nothing of theirs was missing. The whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked him, who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have butchered, butchered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. David's young men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to the men, all of your swords. So each man put on his sword and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 men stayed with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us well when we were with them in the field. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living with them. They were well, there were a wall around us both day and night. The entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do, because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool. Nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, go ahead of me. I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode the donkey down the mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so, do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, 
she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to, your, uh, to you directly. Listen to, my wor- listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Through your, throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord, your God, protects the living. But he is flinging away your enemies, your enemies' lives like stuff from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he has promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or tr- there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does these things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harassing you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you have said, and I have come to request. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in his house, holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal heard, Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk. So she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning, when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died, and he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who had championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to, to him as a wife. She stood up, paid homage with her face to the ground and said, Here I am, your servant, a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly, and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers, and so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the two of them became his wives. The Saul gave his daughter Michael 
who was his first life, first wife, remember, uh, David's wife, to Patty, the son of Laish, who was from Gadol. We begin here, this chapter begins with one simple statement, one simple event, which is the death and burial of Samuel at Ramah. Not only was he the last of the great judges, but he was also considered by all of Israel as the greatest prophet since Moses. But when he died, the Jewish people had good reason to gather together to mourn for him. And without a doubt, his passing must have hit David especially hard since Samuel had been so instrumental in his life up to this point. Thus, in what appears to be one more reason for despair, after this time of mourning or during this time of mourning, David turns to journey further away from Saul and deeper into the wilderness of Paran. And from verse 2 forward to the end of the chapter, we're given a story that took place in the area of Maon, between David, Nabal, and a wise woman named Abigail. While in Maon, he helped protect. He, well, while in Maon, Maon, he helped, he needed some help. He needed some help, and he sought the assistance of a man named Nabal, who he himself had helped during the concluding events of chapter 23. Now, we're then given three important facts about Nabal that helped set up everything that is about to happen in this story. First of all, we're told that Nabal is a very rich man. And those riches included a lot of cattle. Second, he had an intelligent and beautiful wife named Abigail. And third, he was harsh and evil in his dealings. Now, you may be asking right now, how did a woman like this ever get matched up with a man like Nabal. Now, yes, we can understand that this in that in this day you know, there were a lot of arranged marriages. It wasn't really her choice that why would a father arrange for her, her daughter to be married to such an awful person. Now Again, again, there may have been a lot of different reasons that we don't know about, but know about, but here's the thing. There are many Abigails today who are in that place not because the marriage was arranged, but because they chose it. They chose to be in that kind of a marriage. They chose to be with a person like Nabal. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe they they were deceived. Uh, they were bamboozled into thinking that uh, he was one person. Or they thought he was one person. He turned out to be a totally different person. 
Well, someone once said this. It's remarkable how many Abigails get married to Nabal. God-fearing women, tender and gentle in the sensibilities, high-minded and noble in their ideas, become tied in 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 indissoluble union with men for whom they can have no true affinity, even if they have not an unconquerable repugnance, even if they have not an unconquerable repugnance. Well, let me share with you what Alan Redpath said regarding this statement. May I say to you lovingly, but firmly, if such a circumstance has befallen you, that is no reason for you to invoke the law of the country to get out of the entanglement. Perhaps God knew that you needed the fiery trial to humble you and to make you a testimony to your partner. The Bible says you must stay as you are. Maybe there will come, maybe there will come to you one day as there came to Abigail a new opportunity. But until then, it is for you to prove the grace and power of the Lord in your heart to strengthen you and keep you pure. Now, if you're in that kind of situation, as difficult as it is, as hard as it is, I, I agree with what Alan Redpath is saying here, that you've made a commitment and to, to, to stay in that marriage and to, to fulfill your duties as a wife, your biblical duties as a wife. Now, I also do want to just mention this point is that if you are in a relationship that is abusive, that is that where your life is in danger, or your, the life of your children is in danger, or you know you have a husband that shows no respect and is off being with different women, and I really believe that really gives you a reason to first of all your life. You, you don't, your life is important, your life is precious, and if your life is in danger, you need to get out. You need to walk away. You need to separate and take that time and um, take care of yourself, take care of the lives of your children. In regards to infidelity, the Bible is clear about it. And but the choice is yours. There's always a choice. There's always a choice that, that you have, and, and if you want to work it out, that's fine. If you want to stay, that's fine. But if you want to leave, you know, the Bible gives you a reason, gives us a reason why that that's a well, that's a biblical reason to, to walk away. So keep that in mind. Keep that with you. That again, you maybe would. I mean, to be honest, all of us guys be jerks for all the time. You know, I probably was a jerk. You know, just last week, I don't know. Past week, I don't know. But, um, but I think all of you women know, all of you wives know whether or not your husband really cares about you, really loves you. And we have no reason to, to believe here that you, that Nabal was. Anyway, abusive towards his wife, or we know that he was a harsh and evil man in his dealings, then maybe in his dealings with others. But um, I, you know, I want to assume that he was nice to his, to his wife. I don't know. Maybe he was 
Jesus, or, I don't know. Again, I'm just assuming here. But um, anyways, uh, well, let me move on because I'll just keep going with that. Now, considering all that David had done for him in the past, David sent 10 young men from the ball to respectfully ask him for whatever he had available to sustain him and his men in the wilderness. In response, Nabal referred to David with the same insulting words that Saul had used against David and accused him indirectly of running away from Saul, his master. Then, obsessed with his possessions, Nabal referred to his own goods as my bread, my water, and my meat that I have butchered for my cheers. So after this insulting tirade, Nabal refused to even to even give them a loaf of bread in gratitude for the help that they had given them while they were herding their sheep. And you know, it's mentioned here that David's men, David and David's men were like a, a wall, like a barrier in, in, in protecting them. When the, servant, when the servants returned, they reported everything that was said and, and an enraged David then took about 400 men with him to attack and punish Nabal. Now, as David was, maybe as, yeah, as David's men were leaving and, and all this was happening, one of Nabal's young men had the wherewithal. He understood, he knew Nabal and knew that he was stubborn and he wouldn't listen and he would, that what he just did would be the downfall of that entire family. Well, he, he, uh, he had the wherewithal to inform his wife, Abigail, of the dangerous predicament her husband just put them in. And when she recognized the seriousness of the situation, she took decisive action by gathering enough food for David and his men and went out to take it to him personally. Now here, again, is one of the wisest, strongest women that is in the Bible. She is the one who took that decisive action. She understood that that Nabal's words, because of Nabal's words, her entire household, everything that she had married into would be destroyed. Maybe she had grown close to their cert to his uh, Nabal's other servants, and he she knew that they were all going to be killed. That he was going to be killed, that you know there might have been just a number of different reasons, but she took that decisive action. She's like, I need to do something. And again, that is I think that, that wisdom is important. It is necessary in a wife. Because again, sometimes us as we're not thinking straight, we're not thinking wisely, we're not we don't we're not you know, we're not thinking the bigger picture. And so sometimes yeah, the wife has to step in and take that decisive action. And uh, in the end that wisdom will 
will prove itself and it has it's proven itself in, in, in my in our own household in our own life when I thought I was when I made wrong decisions involving me I'm like hey man let's stop you know let me let me uh let me take care of this before he ruins everything so yeah you know I really appreciate her and again it just shows the the wisdom here with Abigail but when she met him, it turned out to be one of the best male-female encounters in all of the Bible. You see, even before David could say anything, the intelligent and beautiful woman got off her donkey and fell on her face at his feet. The first words that she spoke were, guilt is mine, my Lord. Then asking for permission to speak, she spoke some of the wisest words in all of Scripture. In fact, her words in verses 24-31 are the longest recorded speech by a woman in the Old Testament. She begins by letting David know to pay no attention to what her husband's foolishness, to, to pay no attention to her husband's foolishness, since his name summed up the kind of person he was. Again, let me repeat what she says in verse 25. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. Wow, what a name to be given. I hope I'm never called in the ball. I know. I know what that means now, so. <clears throat> well, thereafter, Abigail asked for forgiveness and reminded him that the Lord had kept him from blood, bloodshed and that God would punish his enemies, even the ball. She also had the spiritual insight to see that God would eventually make David king. Why? Because he fights the Lord's battles. So not only was she wise, intelligent, beautiful, but she had that spiritual discernment to know what David was meant to be, what David, God's calling on, on David's life. He goes on to tell them in verse 31 that by killing the ball, it would only burden his conscience because he was doing, he was going to do himself what God should have been doing, would, would be doing himself, what God was, uh, would himself want to do or himself would do. Impressed by her wisdom, David followed her advice. He gratefully accepted the food that she had brought and left of the ball situation with the Lord. Her intervention not only demonstrated her wisdom, but also may have saved the ball's entire household from being completely wiped out. Well, as the story goes on, when Abigail returns home, you see that he was throwing a big party, fit for a king. And in that party, he became very drunk. 
but just to make sure he wouldn't do anything else that was stupid. She waited until the next day to tell him what had happened. Again, this brings up an interesting point from my own experience. So don't argue with a drunk person. Don't try to you know, have a conversation, a logical conversation with a drunk person. Because not gonna, they're not going to just going to do something stupid, say something, something dumb, and wait until the morning when they're sobering up and see how they respond. And we see here what how he responded when he found out the news. Says that when he heard it, it appears that he had a heart attack, fell into a coma, and then died 10 days later. Hearing of Nabal's death, David soon sent a proposal of marriage to Abigail, which he accepted with great humility. David also acquired another wife, Ahinoam, since he had gone into hiding. Meanwhile, Michael, his first wife, had been given to another man. The kingship lesson that David learned with his encounter with Nabal and Abigail is that as king, he wasn't to carry out personal vengeance, but to trust in the Lord to defend him. This chapter continues to give, a, give, us, to give us a glimpse of David as he makes his way into becoming the ideal king. He's evolving from the young exile who acts impetuously out of fear and anger to becoming Yahweh's anointed one, who is patient enough and faithful enough to wait out God's timing. So this encounter with Nabal was sort of a test for him. With Abigail's speech to guide him, David's test was to listen to wise counsel in order to get past this challenging relationship, this dynamic that now he had with, with Nabal. In the process, David learns not to seek revenge or to seize power on his own hand, but rather to trust in the Lord to defend him and again to wait on his timing. It was becoming clearer and clearer to David that he was to fight the Lord's battle while also allowing the Lord to fight his battles. Now, another theme in this text is David's teachability. See, before he confronted, he was confronted by Abigail, his mind was made up that he was going to completely take out Nabal wipe him out, his entire household. But after her persuasive plea, he not only changes his mind, but also acknowledges that God is the source, was the source of her instruction. Aware of this, David immediately changes his mind and does a 180 on what he was about to do. This again shows us that he's capable of correction and that he's flexible enough to learn new principles and to quickly put them into action. I once heard someone say, blessed are the flexible. So yes, 
important. Again, here's future king taking instruction from a married woman and flexible enough to, to, to learn new principles. And just as we saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 24, one of the main issues that's being addressed here as well is has to do with discipleship. See, the nature of Christian discipleship involves learning. Since a disciple is, after all, after all a learner, and the rabbi is a teacher. So this chapter serves as a reminder that disciples must be teachable. They receive the word of God and must act on it, adjusting their lives accordingly. Again, we must remember that we're all disciples, that we're all learning, that we're all, that we all must be teachable. You must be able to receive instruction, accept it, and be flexible with it, and learn from it, and, and adjust our lives accordingly if we need to. See, all of us are on a journey somewhere. All of us are in the process of becoming someone. Christian discipleship adopts a certain understanding of the nature of growth in grace. In one sense, growth does not really change the nature of the thing itself, or in this case, the essential nature of that person. An oak seeding, uh, an oak seeding simply cannot grow into a mature maple tree, no matter how much growth occurs. So a new believer, Immature in faith at first should grow naturally into a mature believer. To use, again, a scientific example, growth enlarges what there's, what there's in uh, germinal form. In the same way, baby in Christ should move, should move forward to grow in their maturity, becoming, it's hoped, a giant in the faith. Conversely, it's unnatural not to grow. A babe in Christ who does not grow will in time become stunted. A diminutive Christian. In another sense, however, growth requires many not of the essence of the thing or person, but of many other features. To continue our scientific analogy, the oak seeding or the oak seed experiences many changes as it becomes a mature oak tree. Its roots move deeper and further away from the center as it requires more and more nutrients. It develops thicker kinds of bark, and the trunk itself becomes larger with each annual ring. Likewise, the growth that is natural for a maturing Christian requires many changes. As 
one becomes more mature in faith, he or she discovers areas of change needed in their lives. And that may come unexpected, it may happen unexpectedly, that, that they, they may see areas that they need to, in their lives that they need to change that are going to be unexpected. And that happens again in our lives. God is chipping away all that junk from our lives, from our hearts. And he's making us more and more into the image of the Son, into the image of Christ. And so he reveals things to us. He reveals things in our hearts, in our lives that we need to remove in order to draw nearer to him, in order to, again, grow in our faith, grow as Christians. And we can't ignore it when he shows these things to us. Very easy to say, oh, Lord, you know, it's too hard. You know, I don't want to, but if you truly want to grow closer to the Lord, if you truly want to to have a deeper relationship with Him, to be to grow more again into the image of Jesus Christ, these are things you need to remove out of your life, no matter how hard, how difficult they are. David illustrates this principle well. He at first thought it only natural and reasonable to exact revenge on Nabal because of the rude and unfair treatment he had received. But after learning a better way, he quickly changes. Again, David shows himself to be the legitimate anointed one of Israel. His essential nature as a man after God's own heart is what the anointed one should be. He resists the use of violence to accomplish his goal, even though he knows the goal is, after all, the very thing God wants for him. Instead, he waits patiently for God's plan and timing and for God's means of accomplishing that goal. In this sense, David prefigures another anointed one who also resisted the use of violence to accomplish God's plan. He also waited patiently for God's means of accomplishing the plan, even when the whole world expected a different method. Jesus, the son of David, is also the legitimate, legitimate anointed one who, like his ancient ancestor, refused to resort to human power structures to accomplish the will of the one who sent him. We must, again, look to Jesus as, as that example for us as well. And in this story, too, shows us the importance of not allowing us to move forward, not to uh, take things, matters into our own hands, especially ones that we know that are going to cause a lot more damage that isn't, you know, that he doesn't want for our lives. Um, you know, we have to wait on him as Christians and believers. He has a plan, he has a purpose for your life. Um, make it time. It is timing is perfect. 
He's good, and he will do it when the time is right. Just remember that. Right. I'm going to transition now to the next chapter, which is short again. It's not very long. And um, I want to mention a few things about that. First Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hichelah, opposite of Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of, of, of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road, beside the road at the hill of uh, Hachelah, opposite of Jesh Jeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there after him. So David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were laying down. Saul was laying inside the inner circle of the camp when the troops camped around him, with, uh, with the troops camped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech, the, the Hethite, and Job's brother Abishai, son of Zeruah, who will go with me to the camp to Saul? I'll go with you, answered Abishai. That night David and Abishai came to the troops, and Saul was laying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck to the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were laying around him, and Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear threw him to the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head, and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. David crossed to the other side and stu stood on top of the mountain at a distance. There was a considerable space between them. Then David shouted to the troops and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer, Abner? Who are you who calls to the king, Abner asked. David called to Abner, You're a man, aren't you? Who in Israel is your equal? So why didn't you protect your lord, the king, when one of the people came to destroy him? What you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you deserve to die since you did not protect your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now look around you. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that were by his head? Saul recognized David's voice and asked, Is that your voice, my son David? It is my voice, my lord and king, David said. Then he continued, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Now may the Lord, the king, 
Please hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. But if it is the people, may, may they be cursed in the presence of the Lord. For today they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and worship other gods. So don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the Lord's presence. For the king of Israel has come out to search for me for, for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. Saul responded, I have sinned. Come back, my son David. I will never harm you again because today you have considered my life precious. I have been a fool. I have committed a grave error. David answered, here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will repay, will repay every man for it, his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord's hand handed you over to me today. Just as I consider your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all my trouble. Saul said to him, You are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way, and Saul returned home. In this second account of David sparing Saul's life, we see once again that David wouldn't take by force what was to be his inevitable victory in his struggle with Saul. Now, what makes this account uh, interesting, though, is that the roles are now reversed with now David stalking Saul. Now, back in chapter 23, the Ziphites had betrayed David by informing Saul of his whereabouts. And had Saul not been interrupted by a Philistine raid to the west, Saul probably would have caught up to David and captured him. But that wasn't part of God's plan. So here now, again, the Ziphites once again reported to Saul what David was hiding. Well, Saul quickly mustered up his own force, five times larger than that of David's meager band, and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. Now, we're not told what made Saul want to come after David again. In chapter 24, uh, when the two men had last parted, they seemed somewhat reconciled, like they had made up. So here, maybe evil men had stirred up the king's hatred afresh, or perhaps it was that evil spirit that was tormenting him. But either way, Saul was out to kill David again. Now, in verses 5 through 12, uh, we're told that David had been spying out Saul's camp. And in the evening, he and his relative Abishar snuck into the camp and picked their way between the sleeping troops at the central point where Saul was sleeping. The royal spear was right there next to his head. And that spear was meant for his protection, but it very nearly became an offensive weapon in the hands of Abishai, who eagerly wanted to kill him. He's like, ah, there's that spear, I can just... You know, let me do it. I, I can end his life right now. He just 
steal the juice and run in. He just, you know, he wanted to do it. But David ordered him not to. Because although Saul was a wicked man, he was the Lord's anointed. It was the Lord's responsibility to deal with him. David, though, did end up taking Saul's spear and the jug of water and then left. And again, when he was outside the camp, he raised his voice and taunted Abner for his carelessness in guarding the king. And so with the jug of water in one hand and the spear in the other, he told of Saul's second deliverance from death at his hand. Now, what still puzzled David, what he still didn't understand was why King Saul pursued him so vehemently when he had already proven that he had meant him no harm. David goes on to say that if the Lord had incited up Saul against David, then David could satisfy him by presenting a sacrificial offering. But if men had, had incited Saul's hostility, they should be cursed because they had banished him away from the only sanctuary where he could worship God. David then asked that his blood not fall on the ground far from the Lord's presence. And and again, what he meant by that, that he, that he didn't want to die away from the Lord's sanctuary, away from the sanctuary of the Lord. And, and then speaking of himself, reminded the king that he's out searching for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. Well, Saul apparently repented when he realized what David, that David had spared his life again. He acknowledged that David was more righteous than he, for he sought David's life without cause. Whereas David spared his life, though he could have killed the king in self-defense. David made his final appeal, appeal to the Lord to take note of his righteousness. And Saul reported, responded to David with a blessing and a prophecy of future greatness for his son David. The chapter then ends with David going his way and Saul returning home. The two episodes in which David spares Saul's life are told in close proximity, separated by only chapter 25, the chapter that we just covered, in order to help us to measure the development in David's character as he reacts basically to the same circumstances. Now, in chapter 24, you see some of the same issues in this chapter, especially the reoccurrence of um, reverential respect for God's anointed one. David has once again acted on his conviction that is that it is not acceptable to execute justice through wrongdoing. In other words, the end doesn't always justify the means. However, there's a subtle comment in this text that contributes to our expanding portrait of David. That comment is David's reason for not allowing Abishai to kill Saul. 
if you compare verses 9 and 11 with verse with chapter 24 verse 6 it reveals david a david who has grown significantly in his understanding of his in these events and more importantly in god's active involvement in both passages of course the central objection is harming saul and that because he is the anointed one of, of god but in chapter 26 david adds the various ways in which saul might die either by natural causes or in battle either way it must be yahweh's doing not david's now, the issues that we can apply through our own times grow out of growth and maturation that and, and discipleship that I talked about when we covered the previous chapter and the nature of faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of we, what we do not see. See, David won't always be a perfect example of faith, but at least in this text, he's convinced of God's guidance even when he doesn't have immediate confirmation. This is also a natural part of Christian discipleship. As we grow and mature in our faith, we also become more confident about God's guidance. And we spend less time seeking, less time seeking constantly for evidence of his moving. We become less anxious less worried, and become more confident that he's leading, that he, he's in charge, that he's is in charge of this, that entire situation, this becomes become more at ease, more at peace. Unfortunately, in our modern context, the opposite development is taking place. As we Christians become more com comfortable in the conviction that God is at work in the details of life, the sad reality is that the world around us has made less room for God. For over 2,000 years, ladies and gentlemen, the underlying principle of Western civilization believed that the belief uh, that, that God exists and that he defines human moral responsibilities. But now, in our 21st century, educators, politicians, the media, other influential figures, even some religious figures, pastors and pulpits have been boldly moving forward trying to, to try to redefine all responsibilities without the benefit of God. It's becoming more easy and comfortable for people to say that modern humankind doesn't need God or can live without him. One leading sociologist describes American values today as utilitarian individualism, meaning we're mostly driven by the need for personal success and vivid personal feelings. For example, 
Marriage becomes an instrument of personal development. Work becomes a vehicle for personal advancement. And the church, a means for personal fulfillment. We simply live as though God weren't there. As born-again Christians, it's important to firmly hold to the conviction that God is there and is the ultimate cause for everything. See, at this very moment, he is actively involved in the universe in general and in the particulars of our lives, of your life. Even though we may not be conscious or may not acknowledge his direct participation, God is always in control and will not allow anything to occur that isn't his will or part of his magnificent plan for us. This is what God said in Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. And in Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7, it says this. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. In the seas and all the depths, he causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. So everything is in the palm of his hand. You waking up this morning was because of his will, was part of his plan. You coming here was part of his plan. You being married to your husband, to your wife, was part of his plan. You may not like it. You may not see the blessings in it. You may see none of the problems, but that is part of his plan for you. Now, if you can accept that, if you can believe that, if you can trust in that, it will make things a lot easier. And, and if both of you can come to that place where, again, you understand that this is who God placed in your life for a reason, for a good reason, then it's going to be a lot of positivity. There's going to be a lot of light there in that marriage, even if it's even if it's seems like there's a lot of problems, a lot of issues. But when God isn't there, it makes it easier. You know, then what's what's it worth? What, I mean, what for? Well, why am I in this? What's the purpose? I'm not even happy. I'm not even you know base it on on feelings. And really, you should base it on truth. And the truth is that God has you in that marriage for a reason and purpose. Christian brothers and sisters, regardless of where you are in your walk, you'll never be done growing and learning as a follower of Christ. There's more. Continue to grow. Continue to learn. Don't stop. Let's pray.